Thank you, Rembert family. We're thankful for that reading. I want to welcome you again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Um, if I have not had a chance to meet you, I would love to do so. So if you have time to stick around after the service, I would love to just um, say hi to you face-to-face and um, introduce myself in that way. Um, we're, if you're a guest with us, we're honored that you choose to spend a Sunday morning with us. Um, we find ourselves in our fourth week of our Advent series in preparation for Christmas um, here in about eight days. And so pray with me, and then we'll jump into the text for this morning. Father, we're thankful for this time. We're thankful that um, you have chosen to reveal yourself through your son, primarily, and through your word. And we, we see what you're like. We see the peace you give us. We see the hope you give us. We see the joy you give us through your son. And we're thankful for that. And as we um, focus more intentionally on your son's birth in this season, I pray that you would change us. You would change our minds. You would change our hearts. You would change the way we live um, when we leave this place. And above everything else, I pray that your son is lifted up and he's glorified today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So this is our fourth week of our Advent series. In the last three weeks, we've looked at the traditional Advent themes of peace, hope, joy, and today we're going to look at love. And we're taking each of these traditional themes and kind of looking at what does the Bible actually say about these things and define them well, as opposed to maybe some of the definitions that we import from the world into these um, common words. And we're doing so through the scriptures, but also in light of the birth of Jesus, because this is the Advent season. When it comes to love, um, this word love, one of the most dangerous things we can do is take the world's definition of love, or maybe even our definition of love, and import that, maybe without even knowing, into how we view God's love. So we need to be careful as we throw around this word love as it relates to God. And that's what we're going to look at today. One example this time of year um, of of, of maybe importing some definitions of love is the the traditional American um, Hallmark movie, Christmas Hallmark movie, right? Like you got successful, big city girl, she's traveling along, going to a conference, car breaks down in a small town, a handsome guy, a hardworking guy, blue-collar guy in a flannel shirt picks her up. They begin to like each other. There's a misunderstanding, She decides instead of staying those few extra weeks, she says, I'm headed back to the city. I'm done with this small town. But right before she leaves town, she's walking through that downtown square. Snow just happens to start falling. She walks into this bakery. This guy she likes happens to be also the baker of the town. He's an incredible dude. He's making the best gingerbread cookies she's ever smelt. She tries one. They fall in love. They kiss. She quits her job, and all their problems and obviously responsibilities fade away. They live happily ever after, and we 
the movie stops there, right? I mean, it's ridiculous. The, the sentimentality that this is dripping with is ridiculous. But Hallmark Christmas movies, and I've looked this up, have never been at, in higher popularity. The ratings have never been better. That's why all the streaming services are not having their brand of the Hallmark Christmas movie. But what we see in the scriptures, especially with Jesus coming into the world, is not a sentimental love story. It's anything but. We don't see this with Jesus in the scripture. And the point today is how we view God's love directly affects how we experience him, how we experience his love, how we love him, and how we love others. So it's so important for us to get this definition of love right and define that as the scriptures define it, rather than maybe how we would define it, um, maybe in our own lives or from the world or whatever it is. And here, here are some examples. I, I think uh, one way we can import these views um, and maybe see God's love and how it affects us and how it moves us off is that when we think that God loves us because of how good we've been, how, how good of a person we've been, how morally um, right we've been in a particular season. So in that definition, we don't see God's love overflowing from himself, from his person, but his love is like a spigot, right? Like when we're doing really well morally, he's, that, that love spigot's on and it's flowing and we feel it. All things are good. But the moment we fail, the moment we don't live up to our moral expectations, we feel like God has turned that spigot off. And his love is no longer there because we haven't done enough for him to love us. We haven't behaved in a certain way. And then what do we do when we go love others? We become the love spigot, right? When somebody, when we like somebody, they agree with us, we think they're deserving of our love, we turn that spigot on and we let that love flow because we've been loved by God. But what happens when they don't agree with us? They don't see the world like us. They persecute us. We kind of forget about loving our enemy type passages, loving our neighbor type passages, and we are quick to turn that spigot off because they're not deserving of it. So how we view God, God's love more specifically, determines our relationship with God and it affects our relationship with others. There's a direct connection here. We're going to see this in our primary passage today. It's 1 John 4. 7 through 12. I'll read this and then we'll go back through it and highlight some things. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. In this passage, which I think may be the clearest, most concise teaching of God's love in all the scriptures, we're going to see three aspects 
I think, clearly of God's love. And we're just going to walk through these. And we're going to see how those things change the way we live when we leave this place. The first thing we see is love comes from God. It's in his very nature. Look at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. And here it is. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God. Because God is love. And notice two things uh, John says here about the nature of God's love. One, it's from him. Like love's coming from God. He's the, he's the source of that. And in verse 8, it says God is love. Two like massive, strong statements about how the love of God and God himself are linked. And what John means here with these two statements is that love is from God the way heat is from fire or the way the light is from the sun. Like when we think of fire, we cannot help but think of heat. When we think of the sun, we cannot help but think of light. We, those two things are, we can't separate those things, right? So love with God, it's woven into what he is. It's part of what it means for him to be God. Jonathan Edwards says this about this idea. For God is the fountain of love as the sun is the fountain of light. That source idea. See, God's love is motivated by who he is and not who we are. And this is different than how we give and experience love. Our love is usually defined and described in terms of responses to something in the environment. Maybe it's the situation or an object, or a person. Here are some examples, right? I love Thai food because it tastes good. So food that tastes good, I love that food. But I wouldn't love that food if it didn't taste good first. I think Nicole, my wife, is beautiful, right? I think she is a lot of things. Um, but there are some facts there that happened first that I noticed, and that provoked me to love her, Right? Another example is, I love Die Hard because it is a great Christmas movie. Again, great movie, I, Christmas movie. I love it because of that, right? I have the mic right now. You can't argue with me. Um, but the, the, the kind of love that God expresses comes first. The things that we say we love, even if it's our spouse, they, have, they are someone first, and then we respond in love. God is overflowing with love. He is the one who initiates love. So the first thing we need to remember is love, God is love. Love comes from God, but it not only comes from God, God shows or manifests this love to the world through Jesus. Look at verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us. He's going to explain that. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. It's the purpose of that. Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This idea of love wasn't just a feeling to God. It had action behind it, right? He overflowed. He could not help. He can't help but love. He is love, and, he, and that love is proven to the world through the person and work of Jesus. 
It was made known to the world through Jesus to us. And this is the way God chose to reveal his love to us. It's primarily in Jesus. There's other ways, of course. But the apex, the, the primary way we know God's love is through the person and work of Jesus. Jesus died to show that God's love, like Jonathan Edwards said, is an ocean without shores or bottom. It's endless. It's boundless. And like Paul, a leader in the early church, said in Ephesians, he says that, that we must comprehend. We need to understand the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of God's love. That's our primary, our, one of our primary roles as a follower of Jesus, to understand and to know how much God loves sinners. And that just overflows out of him. And in these two verses, I think we see actually three ways that he shows this love. One, God, God sent Jesus. He initiated it. And think about this. The one who's the uh, offended in this relationship, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, the humanity is the offender. We the offender, God is the offended, and yet God the offended is the one who initiates reconciliation. That is not the natural way of the world, right? When I'm offended, I expect the offender to initiate forgiveness and apology or the relationship. That's how I'm bent. That's, my, that's the justice inside of me. Not so with God. God, as the offended, actually initiates the reconciliation to the offender, humanity. Now, the way we see that he loved us, and it's the way this overflows, is he sent the most precious thing on our behalf, his son. He didn't withhold anything back. He said, here, 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 sinners, you can have this, but not this. No, his love overflows so much that he's given his only begotten son, the thing most treasurable to him. And it kind of all comes, the purpose of this, he was sent to give us new life so that we might live. This leads us to the third aspect of God's love. He gives us new life that, that's made possible by this big word, propitiation, through propitiation. Verse 10 again, I'll read it again. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but the love that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love had nothing to do with something in us. Nothing. Like there was nothing that he saw in us that he found Lovable enough to say, oh, because they are just a little bit moral. No. That he saw nothing in us that was worthy of him loving us. God's love is motivated by who he is, not who we are. And this is really important because it connects to the way we live. Right? If we think we had some moral standard that got God's attention, like we thought we, if we stopped doing this, if we became this kind of person, then maybe God would love us more. Let's just play that out. Let's say that's true. After we're saved, what do we have to do? Well, you, we better keep that standard because that's how we were saved. So now the moral standard for us is here. We got to keep it. We have to make sure we're here. We got to set that treadmill at that number, and that treadmill can never slow down in our morality. What a tiring, enslaving way to live. And if we go into our relationship with God thinking we brought something, we're going to expect to have to keep that as we live to, to earn or to keep God's grace. 
His love also came at a great cost. This is this idea of propitiation, right? Um, big theological word, right? I'm still waiting for that, that killer Advent song to work this word in, right? Probably doesn't roll off the tongue really well as you're singing. Um, I'll get Josh on that um, for next year. But this word, if you just look it up, the definition, it's to appease someone's wrath. To appease someone's wrath. This is what propitiation is. And in this age that John would have been writing this letter, this would have been a fairly, not a, I don't know if a popular word, but a for sure popular idea um, because of the Greek mythology that was popular in the time. Like the, 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 the humanity, part of this, this kind of interchange between the Greek gods and um, the Greek mythical gods and humanity was humanity had to um, propitiate the wrath of the gods. They continually had to give them sacrifice. They continually had to do things to keep the gods from crushing them. They were, they were scared to death of everything about these gods. They were otherworldly, and all they could think of was to keep doing things to keep the gods' wrath away from them. But that is not the case with our scriptures. The scriptures teach us that there's nothing we can do to appease the wrath of God. Nothing. We can't be good enough because we all fail. Like we, we all fail. We can't be good enough to appease God's wrath. So God had to take the initiative. He had to send himself in form of his son. It's the Trinity language there, mysterious. But he had to take the initiative to appease his own wrath. And this is where God's love is different. And we need to be careful about importing our idea of love. It's not the kind of love where we walk through a, a room during Christmas, see a decorated Christmas tree, smell cookies, and fall in love to a cute guy or girl while wearing you know, similar matching sweaters, not completely matching, but similar. You see a golden retriever appear out of nowhere, a puppy. Not a golden retriever, I should say, that's the 90s, golden doodle, right, these days, right? It appears out of nowhere, right? And that's not, this isn't a sentimental kind of love. And we can't help but our love is conditional. Even with those closest to us, if you'll kind of pay attention, like often there's this exchange of love. As much as we want to say our love to, let's say, our spouses is unconditional, and that's a lofty goal, but for things to work in a marriage, oftentimes there's conditions put on that love. And we bring that into our relationship with God and kind of make him in our own image, and that is dangerous because it distorts God's love for us. Would we all say, those of us at least in church or have been in church a while or consider yourself Christian, we would probably say, yes, he's loving. Of course God's loving. That's what we're supposed to say. But I think oftentimes we imagine God looking down upon us with this kind of conditional kind of love, right? Like, they, like he's looking down on us and he's like just in this frustrated posture, like they can't get it together. Like what am I going to do with these these followers, these people who call them Christians, they can't get it together. I don't know what I'm going to do with them, right? That's not the way he looks at us. Because when he looks at us, he sees Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Jesus that's been given to us. So when he sees us, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see our mess, which allows us to remain connected to him. That, but that's oftentimes how we view love. It's different. God's love is different. Look at Romans 5, 6 through 11. We'll go through this quickly, but listen to who we were and are to some degree still when God loved us. Verse 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, 
though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God showed his love for us, that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Here's verse 10, listen again. For if while we were still his, while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we see three statements here, verses, verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Not strong, not okay, weak. He died for us. Verse 8, while we were still sinners, not kind of sinners, not kind of more, no, sinners. He died for us. Verse 10, if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. But this is who we were when he saved us. Apart from him, we would still be these people. So can make the logical connection. If, and this is what Paul does here. If he loved us in these states, how will he not love us even more now that we're in his family? But we, we doubt that. Like if he loved you when you were the prodigal outside of his house, before you, you put your faith in him, how will he not love you more now that you are his son and daughter? And so often we doubt that. Maybe we believe that when we became followers of Jesus, but when, once we start living this Christian life, we can doubt so quickly the love that God has for us. Puritan author John Flavel says this, As God did not first choose you because you were high, he will now not forsake you because you are low. Right? God created us. He didn't need to. He had all the love he needed. Again, he overflowed with love. He, didn't, he wasn't lacking in love, and he thought, well, I need more love. Like, I need something to give me more love because I'm lacking. No, God creates over an overflow of his love. He didn't need to create us, but in his, in his pleasure, he did. He wanted to create us. And then we, as his creation, turns our back on him in rebellion. We go our own way. We want to determine what is beautiful, right, and holy for ourselves apart from him. We tell him with our lives that we don't need him. Or maybe we even say with our words that he doesn't exist. And then, and at that moment, he becomes human in the form of Jesus to receive the punishment for his creation's disobedience. That is scandalous. That is the kind of covenantal love that the Bible speaks of, that Jesus is about. If, if you're here this morning and you kind of consider yourself far from God, or maybe you've never really heard what God's love is like from the scriptures, or maybe you've just tried, tried love enough in human relationships that you're like, I'm done with it. Like you've, been, you've been hated enough or you, that, that promise of love has been broken so much by other human beings, you're done with it. You're sick of looking for peace, hope, and joy in other people's love. This morning, right now, where you sit, you can experience God's love through faith. It requires humbling yourself, admitting that you need a Savior, admitting that you fall short, admitting that you can't find this kind of love anywhere else but in a relationship with God. Having faith in Jesus that he was born, that he lived a perfect life, 
that he died a death that sinners like all of us in this room deserve to die, and he rose from the dead on the third day, and now he, he ascended back to God, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he will come back again one day. And this is what we put our faith in, and this is what allows us to experience that kind of love from God. Again, love is in God's nature. He shows his love through Jesus, and he does this through this idea of propitiation, dying in our place. And that changes the way we love. Let's go back to the text. Verse 7. Listen to how, what John is, how John is telling us to treat others. Let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now let's look at verse 11. Beloved. It's like reminding us again. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God's, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Verse 12, that, 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 that idea that his love is perfected in us. He just didn't love us in the past. His love is perfected in us in the present. Okay? Can't forget about that. Sometimes we think the love exists only in the past. No, it's being perfected in us right now through the Spirit who lives inside of his children. And it changes the way we love today when we leave this place. And it changes how we love tomorrow and the next day and the next day after that. So what does this look like? There's two things that I think John tells us about God's love. He gives us, um, through Jesus, he gives us an example for imitation, like the sacrificial, the selfless kind of love. That's one aspect of how we live this out. But the also he gives us the power to love. Again, that God abides in us. He's saying God abides in us and, and his love has been perfected in us. So there's an inside power working that allows us to love like God did. And he also gives us the example of how that's to be done. Again, just God's grace, even showing us how to do this is, is, is mind-blowing. This is a love where we died to our needs and our wants and our preferences like Jesus did. In his incarnation and death, he models the way for us. Coming out of heaven, stooping down, humbling himself, dying to self, this is how we are reconciled to God, and this is how we are to treat one another. So think here are two things to close, the practical things we can do this week. We can humble ourselves. Like this should, when we see this passage, above everything else, we should feel humbled. That there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And it's being humbled in the best way. Not humble like in a very shameful way. It's humble to say, hey, let go. Come to me, all you are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, trust me, lean into me, fall down before me, and let go of trying to be someone that you're not. Admit you're a sinner and receive his love. He wants to give us new life through his son. The gospel story humbles us in the best way possible, so we humble ourselves. Number two, we act in love. We move. Like love is an action, right? God acted by sending his son. So when we leave this place, we're to, we're to act in love. We're to be loving, right? In the midst of all the hustle and bustle and the temptation to kind of keep your head down and just get through this season, we need to stop and pick our eyes up to the world around us. Starts with our family, then the church, and then those outside, you know, as we live our life, who needs to be loved? Tiny, tiny, small things. Maybe just a word. Maybe just a smile. Maybe it's a gift, in the moment that you haven't like prepared for and gone shopping for, right? 
But we first have to look our, lift our eyes up away from us and see the needs around us so that we can communicate what God's love is like in Jesus, especially during this season. Let's pray. Father, we're once again thankful that you don't just say your love in your scripture. You actually show us. You've demonstrated your love for us through your son. Through his life and his death and his resurrection. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. And we're thankful for that. And I pray that that truth would change us. It would make us, allow us to experience your love to a greater degree, but it would also make us the most sacrificial loving people in the world because we've seen, the, we, we, we've, we've experienced, we've been given the most sacrificial loving gift in your son. We need your help. We need that love that dwells inside of us through your spirit to help us. We need your spirit to provoke us to remind us, because we're so forgetful of the gospel, help us. Help us in your word. Help us in the community of brothers and sisters around us to um, exhort us and encourage us to be those kinds of people. So at the end of the day, we can honor you and glorify you and your son to a greater degree, and the world can as well. Amen.